and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And this is our main episode for the month of June, halfway through the year. And this month, we are going to be talking about Season 5, Brackets and Fandom. Rob, how are you? Dave, I'm ill. I'm sitting up here in <laughs> Sydney with a blocked nose. I feel ill, but uh, I'm not dying, so here I am. Uh, yeah, I've just got to the tail end of a cold as well, so... Look, it is the first couple of weeks of winter. Everybody's got their winter cold, but that's okay. Oh, tell me about it. I think half our office has got it at the moment. Uh, we haven't done too badly, but there's only five of us in our office, and half of them are in Canberra this week. So, oh, well, that's not bad at all. Then we've got a, we've got the whole floor of a, a big uh, office building. is is our office. It's all the one uh, department, and it is rife. Yeah, that's not too good. I'm up in Canberra next week and it will be notoriously cold in june oh. so we are the other famous canberra fog but uh we'll we'll get by you got a scarf and gloves and all that sort of stuff no let's face <laughs> it i'm i'm inside parliament house from like 7 a.m to 11 p.m you know <laughs> very good I, I don't see the outside of canberra well just as well <laughs> <laughs> now before we get into things rob just a quick note to say Thank you to all the listeners for some really wonderful and very positive feedback we've had over the last month, which has been a very busy month with our Queer Who episodes, which we had some really good and thoughtful feedback on. Uh, Rich and I did our review of Solo. You still haven't been tempted to go see it, Rob? Still haven't been tempted, Dave. Oh, well, our review's out there, <laughs> and as well as our special On the Virgin books, which I must say I really enjoyed doing and I thought it was a really fun chat and the feedback we've had from that as well has been really nice so thank you to everyone for that yeah absolutely especially on the virgin one that's only just dropped a few days ago at the time we're recording this and already so many people have replied and said how much the books meant to them this is primarily on twitter people have been saying this how much the books meant to them uh and their own little anecdotes and things and you know which books they still have to collect to get the set and all that sort of stuff and it's it's actually been, for what we thought would be a bit niche in terms of our show, it's been one of the more popular things we've talked about lately, I think, Dave. Look, it has. I think there's a lot of people of a certain generation that are very fond of them. And they are, there are some really good books there, but what's also been positive is I've had a couple of people that I've seen on social media sort of say that, you know, they're aware of this series and they missed it, you know, when it came out, they weren't in fandom. But you look at a set of... 61 new adventures or 33 missing adventures and you go i'd like to have a crack at that but there's a lot of books there oh heaps heaps and heaps and that's what put me off i think i said in the recording you know at the time when i sort of got my head around the idea that okay this was this was a good series and it wasn't going away you know after my initial misgivings i then looked at it and thought oh but there are so many of them yeah so a couple of people have said maybe the discussion we've had will give them a bit of help in picking a few that they might enjoy to start with and to sort of get into the series and just test it out, which is really good. Yeah, I've thought that a lot, particularly with regard to The Missing Adventures. I mean, I own all of the NAs, I just haven't read them all. But with The Missing Adventures, I think they're more novels you could pick one here and there and uh, just read because they're not sort of part of an ongoing series. They're really fitting into the existing TV continuity. No, that's right. They're just slotting into a little bit of continuity um, filling somewhere. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Anyway, we're into this month. Now, we'll be talking shortly about Season 5, because I've got a lot to say about the way that this has uh, gone up and down in fandom over the last 30 years. But, as always, we'll start with the news. Absolutely. Uh, I think you're first cab off the rank, Dave. 
Well, we, we are. We're going to expose a bit of non-news first. <laughs> fake news, fake news. <laughs> fake news, yes. Uh, now, when, when Rob and I were deciding when we were going to record this episode, we said, okay, it needs to be done before I go to Canberra for the week. And then we heard that there was a very strong possibility that with the World Cup on, that, now that's the, the one sporting event, the World Cup, where uh, Australians actually accept honourable losses. <laughs> and, and, and I'll just get on the English bandwagon. Uh, but th- there was this rumour that after England's first big match against Tunisia, there would be the first uh, advert or trailer or teaser trailer for the new series of Doctor Who. Yes. So we thought, well, we better make sure we don't record until after that's happened. Mm-hmm. And here we are, Dave. <laughs> here we are, and it didn't happen. <laughs> so, no news there. No no news there, but just, just another example of rumours that come and go. Uh, you've got a piece for us, though, Rob. I do, I do. A, a bit of a serious piece here, so I certainly won't make light of it. Uh, but Chris Hardwick, who people will know through uh, Nerdist Online and also some, uh, some TV ventures that he's involved with, has done uh, Doctor Who-related content in the past at San Diego Comic-Con and beyond. He he is obviously a big nerd, as you'd expect, uh, being involved with Nerdist and such. But he is off the panel. He won't be interviewing Chris Chibnall and Jodie Whittaker uh, at the event because uh, a former girlfriend has uh, alleged... Uh, abuse from him, uh, sexual and uh, psychological, I believe, and uh, so everyone's distancing themselves from him, as is appropriate at times like this, so San Diego Comic Con has, AMC has, and uh, some other uh, outlets, and uh, that's that's big news, so there'll be a bit of a shake-up for what was planned for the Doctor Who panel, it will have a, uh, a different host uh, when uh, Whitaker and Chibnall are there. I had seen some of this floating around social media. I'm not actually familiar with Chris Hardwick, but I hadn't realised the Doctor Who connection, so that's that's very interesting. But another example, I think, of how these industries particularly, but society in general, is very positively pushing back against this sort of stuff. You know, the usual caveats about innocent till proven guilty, but still, you know, standing up and setting setting standards. Yeah, well, I think geek culture, I'm sure you'd agree, geek culture is very progressive in this sort of area, and that's what, you know, Nerdist is a big part of, and, and events like San Diego Comic Con are part of, so it's it's really no surprise. If you go on YouTube, you can find in years past Chris Hardwick, there's this classic video of him playing 10-pin uh, bowling with Matt Smith and Stephen Moffat and all that sort of stuff, so he's been very ingrained with doing Doctor Who type content in the US for a long time, so it is actually quite big news that he's, he's been uh, yanked off this panel now. Oh, that is that is disappointing. On a more positive note, yes, I've got a little piece just about a Doctor Who actor who's uh, achieved something pretty special, and that is, of course, the Tony Awards were on last week at time of recording, and Andrew Garfield, who was in uh, Daleks in Manhattan and Evolution of the Daleks, won the Tony for Best Leading Actor in a Play. That's huge. That is very huge. That is very huge for the acting world. That that is, you know, for for the stage stage acting world. I mean, you've got the Olivia's and and, the, the, and a couple of others, but in in many ways, the Tonys are it. And yeah. so he he won that for the lead role in Angels in America, which has been getting a lot of uh, critical success over in uh, over on Broadway. Oh, excellent. You know, I always think it's such a shame that Doctor Who has had Andrew Garfield in it, but it was such a horrible story. <laughs> yes. You know, like we can say, oh, we've had Carrie Mulligan. That's great as well. And she was in a fantastic story. But uh, when we say, oh, we've had Andrew Garfield too, it's almost apologetic because we don't actually want people to watch the story. <laughs> 
No, that's right. But no, I'm, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Andrew Garfield's work and some of the movies he's done, particularly some of the least popular ones, he's a really, really good actor. So we're not talking Spider-Man here. I liked him as Spider-Man. Right. Even if his movies weren't great, they were still better than Spider-Man 3. Indeed. But you know, I, you know what I think killed it for Spider-Man? They just brought his sort of reboot out so soon after we'd already had like a series of Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire. It just didn't seem right. And I guess they've rebooted it again since then. Yeah, but with the Tom Holland ones, they've deliberately not done the origin story, which is really, really smart move. Right. Uh, I think I think you're right. I mean, the first Andrew Garfield Spider-Man was just uh, a beat-for-beat beat remake of the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, and it wasn't necessary. They should have just thrown him into an adventure like they did with Tom Holland in uh, Homecoming. Yeah, agreed. But yeah, success for a Doctor Who actor. Very, very good. Uh, another success here, Dave. Doctor Who on Twitch, which we spoke about uh, a month ago, has been doing so, so well. Uh, social media has been lighting up every time they've, you know, streamed an episode. These are, have been up until uh, just recently old 60s black and white episodes that you think, ah, oh, the kids aren't going to enjoy. They've been going nuts for it, Dave. It's been really gratifying to watch. Now, I'll confess I haven't watched any of this these repeats on Twitch simply because I don't have the time. Mm. And I'm watching some of these people on my Twitter feeds who must just have taken a couple of months off work to sit at home and watch <laughs> Doctor Who or something. I don't know how they're doing it. Um, and and we're, not, we're not helped, of course, by the timeline, the time zones in um, in Australia. But, yeah, it's been really good. I've had... There are, there are a few new series, younger fans, who I follow on YouTube or Twitter or whatever just to sort of get a bit of a feel of what they're thinking and what they're doing. And to watch these 17, 18, 19-year-old kids, basically, suddenly say, wow, William Hartnell's really good. This story's really good. Hartnell might be my favourite classic Doctor now. He's really so gratifying and so wonderful. It, it is, and it just puts into sharp relief that god-awful Christmas special and the way he was portrayed in that. It really does, and I'm, I'm really glad. Look, I've, I've said you know a couple of times that if I achieved nothing else in Doctor Who fandom, then advocating for the Hartnell era and invasion of the dinosaurs is, uh, <laughs> is, 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 you know, is what I want to do. And uh, it's really good to see the Hartnell era getting a bit more love from people and... Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleasantly surprised. They're into the Pertwees now, I believe. Yeah, I, be- I believe so. Um, I haven't been seeing as much buzz about them as the 60s stuff. Uh, particularly Ian and Barbara seem to be really capturing people's attention. Well, that just shows good taste all around. <laughs> yeah, so I thought, I thought that was good. And I thought, you know what, if this means a few more people go out and buy some of the classic vi- uh, DVDs and start watching the docos and really getting into this, that, that's a great thing. Yeah, it's a really good outcome, and it's been, yeah, a really pleasant thing to watch. Mm. We're going to end the news as we began with some more fake news, <laughs> or, or allegedly fake news. Okay. This was, this was an example, Rob, of uh, that old adage about the lie gets half around the world before the truth puts on its boots, mm. in that when I woke up a few days ago, social media was full of what was being quoted as fact that starring new Dr. Jodie Whittaker, the 10-episode series of Doctor Who will run from Sunday the 23rd of September to Friday the 21st of December. And it was only a few hours later that people started to go, hang on, this isn't a BBC announcement, this is just something that's come out of the mirror and, <laughs> and is probably all nonsense and it sort of has come and gone and faded completely. So I know there are rumours about it going to be a slightly shorter series and it's going to start a little bit later and it may be on a Sunday. And I think the mirror's just picked all of these rumours, put them together and mashed it up and 
said, here's some news, come click on my website. Yeah, well, I think, I think the Mirror and other papers like that puts their finger on fandom from time to time just to feel its pulse and see what people are saying and does make stories out of what fans are saying. We, yes. we have speculated on, on our monthly shows in the past, could Doctor Who go out on Sundays? I think you were even advocating for it from the point of view that it would be good for the ratings. Uh, of course, it wouldn't be good for us as podcasters, but that's a whole other thing for us to worry about. <laughs> I've actually advocated for a midweek sort of slot, like a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday night. Um, but, but Sunday would work just as well in, in, in many ways, just getting it away from the expectations of the Saturday, um, which I think has sort of changed over the last, what is it now, 13 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, Saturday night on the BBC has changed. So I think maybe there's a better space for Doctor Who. As you say, though, it would be terrible for us in Australia because we would go from getting it very nicely on a Sunday to basically not getting it till monday yeah and and for people overseas that's access to it on a sunday morning here so we can get up we can watch it we can think about it we can record a show and put it out for the sunday night all in one day but if it's monday that it drops here for us well we're not going to watch it in the morning probably we will watch it that night will we record on a monday night when will we edit and suddenly our show will blow out by by days perhaps but that's that's not the listener's problem i guess no it's not but i was just even thinking just from a general viewer's point of view one of the reasons why I started to get back into Doctor Who after sort of, you know, disappearing a bit during that Matt Smith era was when in Australia they started to show the Capaldi era at 7.30 on a Sunday night. Mm. So a, a day behind the UK, effectively. And it was just such a wonderful way to watch Doctor Who, to sit down at the end of a weekend, have your Sunday night meal before you got to get ready for work on the Monday, and just watch Doctor Who. It was the perfect time slot for it. Nobody's out, nobody's got doing sport, and it was a nice, it's a nice time slot for Doctor Who, and it worked really, really well. And so the ABC here will either have to, if it does go out on a Sunday night on the BBC, either put it out on a Monday here, or wait a whole week and do it on the following Saturday or Sunday. Mm, yeah, I, I have no idea what they'll do. But then again, it could just be a rumour. It seems like it probably is. <laughs> All right, Dave, should we move on to our mini topics for this uh, month? Uh, we have. Do you want to lead us off here, Rob? I will, because I'm happy to say, Dave, uh, after a month uh, off from doing this, I have finally watched Time Lash. Excellent. So this is the fallout from our guilty pleasure, Doctor Who. I said that you have to watch Time Lash, and you've made me watch Delta and the Bannerman. Yes, yes. So let's start with you. I, I said Time Lash was a guilty pleasure of mine. How did you find it? Okay. Hands down, this is not as bad as I remember it. I'll start by saying that. Mm -hmm. I think the story is kind of interesting. I think the political machinations that are going on could be amped up a bit more. You know, people vying for power to, to work for the Borad kind of thing. Yep, yep. Uh, the fact that the Pertwee Doctor has been there in the past is actually interesting to me. It doesn't feel too fan-wanky, uh, even when they reveal that sort of drawing of him behind the, the, the wall <laughs> that they smash. Yep. Um, the Borad's makeup is particularly good for the 80s. It, it looks really out of step with most sort of rubber masks and things of the 80s. It looks genuinely ooh, that's scary and good um the use of hg wells feels very new who to me like you know working in characters like charles dickens and such in, in new who yep. and here we have hg wells that feels new who that's a good thing um but i think it's let down a bit by that big padded out argument scene in the tardis 
Uh, it all sort of ends a bit simplistically. Tekka and the Borad get killed well before the end of the episode and in very simple ways. Of course, the Borad comes back. Um, <laughs> yes. And overall, I think the worst crime is the hand wave the Doctor makes, you know, when he stops the missiles but doesn't really explain how. That's mm, a bit disappointing because he, he, he goes off to, you know, to, to die essentially and then comes back and is like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about it later. Or whatever the line is, it, they just totally squib how how, <laughs> yes. how he, he solved the, uh, the problem. Uh, so it's not a great story. It's studio bound. But it's not as bad as I thought it was. How did you find Paul Darrow? Well, he's Paul Darrow, isn't he? He's, <laughs> he's, he's not as entertaining as as his portrayal of Avon. I've got to say that. Um, yeah, that's fair. You know, he has a few good lines, but he's not anywhere near as snarky. Uh, and he's not delivering it in quite the same way. So... You know, it's not as good as his Blake 7 best, but it's still very good to see him in Doctor Who and playing off against Colin and such. That's fun. I've, I've got to ask you, even though I was the one that defended this story, how did you find the bandrels when they first came on screen? Uh, it's kind of like Fraggle Rock. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, but that's okay because they're only on a screen. I think if they're in the same room as Colin Baker or Nicola Bryant, it would look really weird and terrible. But because oh, they're just that, up on a yeah, screen, yeah. it's sort of okay. Yeah, no, no, I think they are the weak point of the, the thing. I mean, they, are, <laughs> they are clearly a sock puppet monster. and Absolutely. You know, they're, they're, they're just so pathetic, you know. Oh, it seems diplomacy has failed. <laughs> uh, but no, I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, you gave me the challenge of Delta and the Bannerman. Yes. And it's just worth pointing out, listeners, if you didn't hear our episode on Guilty Pleasures or just to remind you, we recommended a lot of McCoys in that episode, including, between us, three of the four stories in season 24. We both had Paradise Towers. I had uh, Dragonfire, mm. and you had Delta and the Batman, which says a lot about season 24. I watched this again. It was better than I remember. Mm. It is it is watched in the right way. I agree, an incredibly fun piece of television. Yeah. Uh, I think Bonnie Langford is at her absolute best in this story. Okay. Um, I think this is the best Bonnie Langford story. McCoy isn't too bad. I love his interaction with... Ray, I think that he gets a really nice moment with her. Then some nice stuff in Wales, but there's also some very silly, cheesy stuff as well. <laughs> and I, I, I can't decide if I like or hate uh, what are those Americans, Wise Muller and uh, someone. Yeah, and the other one, yep. Yeah, Wise Muller and the other one. I'm not sure about them. Uh, I'm still not sure about Gronway. Right, yep. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, and, and maybe he's been spoiled a bit by all of the stuff that fans sort of build up around him. Like, oh, he must be an exiled Time Lord. No, he's just an eccentric, lovable old man. <laughs> that uh, that Time Lord thing, that came out very soon after that episode, I remember. Like, around the same time. And it's been repeated ever since. Oh, he's a retired Time Lord on Earth or something. Yeah, very, very strange. Look, I confess I am in many ways what the guys over at Flight Through Entirety would call a Doctor Who Monster Book fan. Mm -hmm. And the story is let down for me somewhat by the whole, well, who are these Bannermen? Why are there only six of them? Yeah. Why do they want to wipe out the, 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 the Shimmerans? How does it all... Like, it, it all just doesn't quite work. 
but it is, I will concede, a lot of fun. And watched in that spirit, I, I agree, is a lot more enjoyable than I've perhaps previously given it credit for. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would never say this is an absolutely great Doctor Who episode, but as a guilty pleasure, which is what our episode was about, it is absolutely a guilty pleasure for me. Yeah, no, no I, I do appreciate it. And I'm, I'm glad I've watched it again. I, I haven't yet watched The Crotons. I've been too busy, but uh, that is on my list of things to do. Yeah, and, and same for me with Time Lash. I don't know when I would have pulled that off, off the shelf again, un, unless you asked me to. Yeah, and that, that's why I think it's good just to sometimes pull these random things off the shelf. It, it's something we found, you know, we're now right at the end of our goodies podcast, and there have been episodes of that that some of us haven't watched for literally 20 years, and we were quite dismissive of, and we watched it again, and maybe because we're in a better mood, or we're older, and we better appreciate it, <laughs> or something, we, we found a lot of these actually stand up much better, and I think that's a really good thing. Absolutely, and I think I'll throw in a quick plug, Dave, for a, a binge full of goodies. Uh, if people out there want to watch all of the goodies um, like Dave recently has on his podcast, they are releasing all the episodes on DVD in uh, a few months' time. Yes, all the BBC episodes, we should be clear. Ah, yes, yes. Yes, the seven RTV ones won't be in the set. They're already out on DVD. Uh, but yes, that comes on sale in September, and they're taking pre-orders now, and the first 500 get a signed certificate by the goodies. Oh, I've got fingers crossed for that, but I'm, I'm not so hopeful because I believe the site was crashing when it initially went up, so I think a lot of people applied for uh, a copy. I basically logged on as soon as I got to work that morning, um, them having come online in the middle of the night our time, and yes, it took a quite a while with several different browsers open. In the end, it was the one on my phone that actually worked first. Oh, wow. I hate ordering things on my phone. It's so small when I'm filling in forms. I would never normally do it, but at this point I just thought, well, the the, the computer's not working. Um, <laughs> I'll try the phone, and suddenly it went through. So I've got my set ordered. Nice one. Me too. Now, Rob, 14 weeks ago I made an undertaking. Yes, you did. To watch Trial of a Time Lord au naturel, if you like, one episode a week as nature intended. Oh, I thought you meant you were watching it in the buff. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I'm very glad I did it. It was... Let, let me say, there, there were positives and negatives. Having now finished the entire story, and it, it probably took me close to 16, 16 weeks, so just a couple I couldn't, couldn't make it happen. I'm glad that I watched it again because there were a couple of segments that did go up in my estimation. I've always enjoyed Terror of the Vervoids. That went up even further this time. Mm. I'd forgotten how fun Mysterious Planet is and just how gorgeous it is as well. It's a lovely, really well shot story. And Colin and Nicola are really, really good in that, particularly in the film stuff. And, and Colin in both of those stories is excellent. And I'm glad that I've seen him again and watched it in that way. Mind Warp is absolutely horrendous. Yeah. And, and, and actually quite unpleasant to watch. The, the Doctor's attitude to Perry is dismissive and brutal and callous, and that just makes for a very awful experience. The ultimate foe makes no sense. <laughs> and this is what has really, really come home to me doing it this way. I'm a fan of Doctor Who. I've seen Trial five, six times over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. And even I was sitting there, you know, by episode 10, having completely forgotten the substance of what happened in episode 1. And I shudder to think how any casual viewer could have held that stuff in their head. It, it, there are clues in Mysterious Planet that are relevant to uh, the ultimate foe. 
and I don't, just don't know how anybody could have held them together. They're not repeated or reiterated or seen it through. It's it's quite tedious, but it's clear that there's only one person who knew how this story was going to end. That was Robert Holmes, and he sadly died before he could write it. Yeah, that that that's the the bitch of it, isn't it? Um, and for years afterwards, I thought, oh, I'd love to know what what he would have done. And I guess these days we do we do have a sense of what he would have done. Uh, but at the time, I felt so ripped off as a fan because I knew what I was seeing wasn't quite right in itself, and it wasn't quite right because yeah, it wasn't the story that was meant to be told there. No, it, it episode thirteen kind of hinges on a very long trial scene of the Doctor, the Valiard, the Inquisitor, Mel and the Master kind of basically standing around explaining the plot to each other. It's like the end of the third Harry Potter novel, which is literally two chapters of the characters standing around in a shack explaining the book to each other for 20 minutes. That's what <laughs> that's what happened here. It, it, it's just these characters standing around explaining the last 13 weeks of television to us in a very undramatic and very boring way, followed by some nonsense in The Matrix, uh, a megabyte modem and, you know, insurrectionist running amok on Gallifrey for no apparent reason off, you know, somewhere where we can't see it happening. And it's it's just incredibly unsatisfactory. So, yeah, w- watching it again brought home to me just how much this didn't work. But I am very, thought, uh, very, very grateful to have had a chance to re-see Mysterious Planet and Verboids, which I did enjoy. And, and I think in terms of Colin's portrayal of the Doctor would be absolutely a way, way above all the other stories he's in, in terms of his betrayal. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I completely agree. Um, and it, it is a shame that he didn't get uh, a, another series. I, I understand where the BBC were coming from. I understand all that. We won't break over those coals uh, here and now. But, mm, gosh, there was more to do with Colin, I think. Yeah, look, absolutely. The one final thing I'll add is to make my trial journey complete... I did go back and listen again to Flight Through Entirety's uh, audio dramatisation of the Eric Saywood script for episode 14, mm-hmm. uh, which I have dubbed Doctor Who in an Exciting Adventure with Contract Law. <laughs> yes. And I have to echo the views of a lot of other people and, and say I apologise to Pippin and Jane Baker. Your version was better. Yeah, yeah, in, in, indeed. And look, we take what Saywood wrote to be sort of, I guess... Uh, influenced by what um, Holmes would have done. You know, I, I think we can take that away from it, can't we? Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt that Saywood was working from the intent of Robert Holmes. Yeah. And and, and it's probably a little bit unfair to judge his script because I'm I'm sure that had it got to production, there would have been another polish and another bit of tightening and some, you know, improvisation and input by the cast and all the stuff that goes into a script. Yeah. Uh, but it was pretty close to being filmed when Saywood pulled the pin. So... Yeah. I don't know, maybe I'm being generous. Well, I, I think of the the stress he would have been under. You know, he's it, it almost sounds cliche, but his friend and mentor, you know, was gone and, you know, he was having to do this. So he probably wasn't writing it in the best frame of mind or with uh, the, the kind of time he would have to write a script normally and, and all that sort of stuff. I, I don't want to sound like a Saywood apologist, but uh, I think that it's fair to say all of that. No, absolutely. And there's no doubt by that stage, his relationship with John Nathan Turner had completely broken down. Yeah. And, and that has to influence things as well. So it's just an unfortunate, um, it's an unfortunate reality that all of these things were all going wrong at exactly the time they were trying to land a 14 episode epic. 
Yeah. Are you glad you did uh, Trial Watch? I am glad I did Trial Watch, though. I, as I said, it was it was fun to commit to doing it and to actually watch these things one, one night a week. Um, so when I started with Mysterious Planet, I was really struggling not to go and just watch another episode and to, to wait a week. And the same with Vervoids. Unfortunately, yeah, when I got to Mind Warp, it's like... It was you know like like taking your cough medicine like okay mm. I'll see I better do it. Yeah, I, I hear you. That that's one I always struggle with every time. Yeah, but something more 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 positive that I've watched. Yes, and this is this is Doctor Who related because it's the latest Russell T Davies project, Ooh. and that is a very English scandal. Ah, I've heard a bit about this. Yeah, so this was a three part dramatization of the Jeremy Thorpe scandal from the UK in the 1970s. For, for those who are unaware, Jeremy Thorpe was the leader of the Liberal Party in, in the UK. They're, they're a minor party in the Commons. And he had a affair with a man by the name of Norman Scott and allegedly hired a hitman to kill Scott in order to ensure that he didn't reveal his homosexuality and ruin his political career. Yeah, it's 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 quite an interesting backstory. This, and, and it sounds to me like something that Russell T. Davis would really uh, do justice to. He really, really does. So uh, Hugh Grant plays Jeremy Thorpe. Mm-hmm. Ben Whishaw plays uh, Norman Scott. And then there's a whole cast of other very familiar English actors in there that many people recognise. But it is perfectly suited to Russell T. Davies because of that black humour, those fun characters. I mean, Jeremy Thorpe is a really amazingly fun charismatic character with this incredibly dark side and that's just wonderful fertile ground for rusty davies and if i'm going to be a little bit cynical it's also perfect for rusty davies because he doesn't have to do the plot or the conclusion yeah (laughs) Yeah, you know the 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 story and the climax and all that is laid out for him he doesn't have to invent that he can just go and do this wonderful character and dialogue around it and you know i mean rusty davies has famously said he doesn't really care how a story ends as long as you have fun getting to the end and and often sometimes his endings are very disappointing whether it's stuff like a lot of his who stories um his seasons of queer as folk uh what was that thing he did with um eccleston um second coming yeah all, all, all stuff that were really really good until the last 10 minutes and just fell apart because he didn't do the ending here he didn't need to invent the ending the ending's history yeah, you know, th- 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 there was a trial, and the trial happened, and the result was what th- what happened. And he just gets to tell the story, and he tells it so wonderfully. So, if you're a fan of Russell T Davies' writing, particularly in Who, I strongly suggest you check out a very English scandal. It should be on the ABC fairly shortly. Uh, either way, the DVD is out in the next couple of weeks if you want to pick it up. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just say I've seen a lot of kudos for uh, Hugh Grant as well. People have been saying, you know, since he got a bit more craggy and old and since he lost the uh, the overly foppish hair, he's now turned into quite a character actor and he is very, very good. He is excellent in, in, in this. Between this and the Paddington 2 movie... Uh, I think his career is up for a whole new wonderful phase. Yeah, no, that's really good. I've I've always had a soft spot for Hugh. Um, oh, likewise. likewise. E- even when he was foppish and you know uh, terribly sorry and uh, you know just dithering and you know all of that, I've I've always quite liked him. But now I think he's just hit a really really interesting phase. Yeah, yeah. He came he came out of that you know young charismatic lead phase and and kind of went into the wilderness for a bit. I think now he's ready for the as you say that that older character phase and it's really good to see yeah well going into the back of that police car i think didn't help his career either at the time well no (laughs) (laughs) okay dave shall we get on to the main topic 
We're going to get on to the main topic, Rob, and that is season five of Doctor Who, brackets, and fandom, close brackets. Mm, yes. So, I guess, let me pitch to you at the very start my my thinking when I, pit, when I, when I suggested this episode to you. Mm-hmm. When I went go back to my time in fandom when I was young, first involved, season five was the classic season. It was the monster season. It was hit after hit after hit. It had the classic uh, early Doctor Who TARDIS team. It was just Doctor Who at its absolute greatest, at its absolute pinnacle. Since then, there have been all sorts of re-evaluations, and it's, it's slid and it's come back and it's slid further, and, and, and you know, Victoria particularly is really coming for a bit of a beating in these last few years, and I wanted to have a look at this season and go, where does it really stand, and why, why has it had such a contentious and controversial view? I mean, I, I really struggle to think of any era of the show that's fluctuated in fan wisdom so much as this season. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm not always in sync with fandom on this, and we'll get to this later. There's one story here that I always thought was great and which fandom has only recently decided was great, for example. So mm. I've never been fully in sync with fandom, but I know exactly what you mean about this series. And I guess, you know, we could probably start by saying how a lot of the episodes for this series have only been found in recent decades. They didn't exist probably at the time you were first getting into Who. No, um, in fact, when, when, when you and I, Rob, were, were first in fandom, of this entire season, five episodes existed. Five episodes in a 60s season is, is nothing, because you know, yeah. they have so many episodes in a 60s season, to only have five, you may as well not have any. Well, it's five out of 40. Yeah, that's right. Um, so they, of course, were Abominable Snowman 2... Enemy of the World 3, Web of Fear 1, and Wheel in Space 3 and 6. Yeah. Now, since then, interestingly enough, every one of the finds in this season has not just added to the season, but has been, you know, a seismic fandom event. Uh, I can remember, for example, when the four episodes of The Ice Warriors were found in about 1990, 1991. Yeah, I think uh, 88 might have been. 88? Was it that early? Yeah. Okay, maybe maybe it took a while to circulate amongst fandom. (laughs) <laughs> they found them in an old BBC Enterprises um, building. They were moving out, and I think they were like behind a, a, <laughs> a filing cabinet or in a filing cabinet or something just absolutely bonkers. That's where those Ice Warriors ones came from. Yeah, August of 88. Yeah, I can, I can remember very bad bootleg copies of those circulating, uh, complete with a little time code down the bottom. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they, they were found. Of course, Tomb was found completely in Hong Kong. That's right. Yeah, a company called uh, Rediffusion uh, in late 91. Yeah, so there you had a whole story and two-thirds of a story come back, so now we get more of it. And, of course, in 2013, we had the big find. Yeah, the really big find. uh, Both uh, coming from a, uh, a relay station in Nigeria, found by Philip Morris, who's a name many Who fans will know. Uh, Web of Fear and Enemy of the World. Uh, what what an amazing find from the one location. And, and so recently, too, you think after many decades, all this stuff would be gone. Yeah, that, that really was incredible. And the result now is that we have 22 of the 40 episodes existing. Fury from the Deep is the only one that has nothing existing. Yeah. Uh, although Abominable, Abominable Snowman only has the one episode out there still. 
So, look, obviously that is going to change fandom's opinion, and, and these stories do get a bit of a re-evaluation. But before we go into that, Rob, when we decided to do this topic, you set yourself a bit of a, a mission that I thought was biting off a little bit more than you could chew, yes. and that was to read all the Target novels. How did you go? Yes, I, I, I didn't get anywhere near finishing them, Dave. It was... <laughs> It was it was an epic uh, for me just to find all of them in my big pile of Doctor Who books, uh, and then by the time I found them, I was too tired to read. No, um, I, I got them all out. I took a picture. I said, "I'm going to do this," but I just found time got away on me, and even Target novels, which are so easy to read, I was just too distracted. Uh, we even had a long weekend. Uh, I was just too distracted, and I, I didn't get through them. But what what I did read was, you know, reminding me of these stories and reminding me how much I enjoy reading Target novels, which I haven't done for so long. And uh, I think they're probably a good way to enjoy these stories if people want to pick them up in this format. Well, in the case of Fury from the Deep, uh, this is probably the best format to pick them up in, unless you're into reconstructions and things. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll pitch the audio CD. Really? I'm a big fan of that, but we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to Fury. Um, but I'm looking at the list now, Rob. Yes. There's not a bad target novel among that list, is there? No, there's not. And they're they're all written by a, a, a lot of different people. It's not like these are all Terence Dix ones. I, I don't have them in front of me. I think only two of them were Terence Dix ones. I think we had like a Jerry Davis and a Victor Pemberton and uh, some others. Yeah, Ian Martyr. Yeah. Yeah, he did one. And and Fury from the Deep, of course, was that big bumper volume that was a really in-depth, really well-written book. Absolutely. That was a that was a huge thing for the time. And uh, even though it kind of annoyed me as one of those uh, OCD-type fans, because I put it on the shelf, I thought, oh, it's much thicker than all the other ones. I, <laughs> I, I don't like how that looks. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's start with Tomb, because I think Tomb is kind of the story that all of this season does flow around in many ways and and kind of crystallizes a lot of the opinion yes fair to say that before it was discovered there was no doubt this was a classic yeah the, the novel is brilliant yeah the legend is that when it was found it went through this massive re-evaluation but i've got to say that's not my memory and I, I went back and i pulled out the local fanzine from after this was first screened at a club meeting and all the reviews were incredibly positive about it and even now in the dwm top 250 survey a couple of years ago it came in at 23 yeah yeah look uh i was out of fandom at this time you know we spoke about this on the virgin uh, new adventures episode i was out of fandom so i i can't attest to have any like first-hand knowledge but I've my sense has always been, yes, it was regarded as a classic beforehand. It was regarded as iconic, the Cybermen breaking out of their tombs. The fact it was Cybermen at all. And I don't know anyone who really, really dislikes this. It doesn't sort of have a reputation like, uh, I don't know, Twin Dilemma or something like that. I've, I've always regarded this well myself, and I've always perceived it to be regarded well. It's one of those ones where you have so many conversations of people saying... I know that this is now far less regarded than it used to be, but I personally really like it. Yeah. Maybe they just want to think they like something that's not well regarded anymore. Maybe it's a hipster thing, Dave. Yeah, look, maybe. <laughs> and, and, and look, there is the aspect to it of some fans picking the plot apart. Now, I would actually say that all the aspects of the Tomb of the Cyberman plot actually do work. You know, people talk about uh, why does the Doctor tell them not to go down to the tombs whilst helping them in. Well, that's really clear. It's because the Doctor knows that if he doesn't go down to the tombs and works out what's going on with the Cybermen, 
somebody eventually will, and that could be a really bad thing. So he has to investigate whilst giving the humans a chance to to to, to go away. Uh, why does he lock the cyber controller into into the power cabinet thingy? Well, he makes it really clear that he just wants to lock him in there and overload him with the electricity and the recharge, but doesn't count on him being able to smash his way out of the door. Mm-hmm. You know, everything in this works in plot terms. That said, though, we probably need to mention Toberman. Ah, uh, I think I know what aspect of Toberman you're going to talk about, too. Uh, well, what, what's your perception then, Rob? Is it the perception of him? And, and when I think of him, I also think of maybe the, the strong man and terror of the Autons and just the way big, powerful black men are perceived in Doctor Who? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm as you know, Rob, somebody who doesn't push back against this sort of narrative, but certainly um, has a critical look at, you know, talking about Doctor Who being problematic or racist or whatever it is. Mm. Toberman is one, though, that I really, really can't push back against at all. It is it is a very unfortunate portrayal of essentially a black slave. Yeah, I was going to say, I wasn't even going to use the word slave, but yeah, okay. If we're going to go there, yeah. yeah. Well, is. It, it, it is kind of how he's signaled and how he's treated. He is... He's essentially owned by by Kaftan, yeah, and and that's that's very unfortunate. And he's, you know, the 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 the, the simple minded strong man. That's a bit unfortunate. Although you know, I'll just jump in, just mentioning Kaftan. That to me though is a very progressive kind of character. I mean, this is the mid mid sixties, yeah, and we've got this uh, Middle Eastern woman uh, who's incredibly powerful in this story. Yeah, no, I would agree, and and interestingly enough. Actually, well, we'll, we'll park that, that thought because there's more to come, I think, as we go across the season with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just going to finish up with Toberman and say, I think one reason why I never really noticed it for a long time is because in the novel, he's extremely sympathetically portrayed. That is true too, yes. So I, I think that that helps to understand maybe what the production team was doing, but it, it doesn't quite work on screen, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, on on screen is the problem. And it's funny, though, because I guess I read it first as a novel before mm. it was, was ever found, before Likewise. I ever saw it. Likewise. Uh, so maybe I've always watched it kind of feeling for him in the same way because I read the novel first, if that makes any sense. No, it absolutely does, and I guess that's the point I was trying to make. I can still remember reading the Tim the Simon novel and the intense empathy and sympathy you have with Toberman, and that does help to carry me through the television version of him. And and I think it is there. I mean, his ending is a very noble one. It's just unfortunate that it's sort of wrapped up in this black slave, simple portrayal. Yeah, agreed. But the Cybermen, they're so cool in this. Yeah, they... <laughs> well, I, I am an unabashed Cyberman fan. You know, I, I like all Cyberman stories, uh, even the really naff ones, because I just really like them. And and I'll happily say that they're, they're seldom done well on television. But here, in 60s black and white, with that music as they bust out of the tombs, the fact they're in a tomb, oh my God, I love this story, Dave. Yeah, and I've got to say, one of the things that I want to talk about as we go through this season is to look at it through the lens of, are they all the same? Are they all this, in inverted commas, base under siege um, trope? Mm. I, I would contend Tomb is not. They are, they are not in a base under siege. If anything, they are besieging a base. Well, we, indeed, yes. They come from the outside into the tomb, yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean they can leave 
that tomb at any time. I mean, okay, there's the whole thing about they can't spend the night at the ship because, uh, you know, it's packed. But but once they're outside of that tomb level, they're, they're actually reasonably safe and they could have just disappeared any time they wanted. They're not under siege. And nor is there a crazy um, base commander. No, no, not at all. Not all right, all. well, this is, this is the first one that is, quote, not the same as the others. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, do, you, do you perhaps want to give us your thoughts on the abominable snowman. Yeah, I've had an interesting background with this one. It's probably the story in this season I'm least acquainted with, and I never got into as much as um, as the other stories in the season. I do like the great intelligence as an enemy, and I've, I've spoken about that in past episodes of our show, but that's primarily come through Web of Fear, uh, more so than this one. But that said, I like the fact that Doctor Who had gone somewhere different, in terms of location for this and, and the involvement of the monks and so on. I always felt this was kind of, I guess it was a 60s kind of thing, wasn't it? Uh, around this time, you know, people were thinking about monks and hippies and all sorts of, you know, <laughs> Eastern mm-hmm. type things. Uh, and for them to be popping up in Doctor Who, it makes, it makes a whole lot of sense. The Yeti, I think, quite interesting. But it is, for me, not the weakest, by, by no means the weakest story in this season, but it's one of the weaker stories in this season for me. Interestingly, this is one that I came to in a slightly unusual way. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned in the past how back in the 80s, when I was a member of the Doctor Who Club of Victoria, they had an audio library where you could borrow cassettes of, of the soundtrack of a lot of episodes. They had Abominable Snowman Part 1 to 4, not Parts 5 and 6. Interesting. So, and I don't know why that was. So I can remember very early on having a really bad copy of the first four parts of this story and getting into it and never knowing how it finished. <laughs> and oh, and no. even even now, that that's still sort of a bit of a vague memory. Um, but again, it has that really atmospheric sort of feeling. Um, the, the portrayal of the, 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 the monks is really lovely and they just have these wonderful lyrical voices and... The, the, the way that Padmasambhavar changes from that old spiritual voice to the harsh voice of the great intelligence. Mm. The, 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 the Yetis, they look great. Troughton is in great form. I think Victoria and Jamie are in great form. Professor Travis is great. It, it is a hard story to judge because it is so missing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of my problem with it as well. It's one of the older Target novels. It wasn't one of the new ones coming out that I was reading. Um yeah, I, I have an interesting relationship with this story, but I, I know enough about it and I've read it before. It's just not the best story in this season for me. No, but you're, you are right, Rob, that it does take the TARDIS somewhere other than contemporary Britain. Yes, or, you know, or space. Or space, yeah. I mean, it's 1930s Asia, which is a very unusual location for Doctor Who. Yeah, it's kind of an Indiana Jones sort of setting, in, if anything. Yeah, it is, it is. And, and, and you get all these lovely little references to, to Tibetan culture, like the, the Holy Gunter and stuff like that, which I love. Now, it comes in at 87 in the DWM poll, which isn't too bad for something that's five-sixths missing. Yeah, and, and old. And old, yeah. Yeah. Is it a base under siege? Hmm. There's no crazy base commander. No. And it is an unusual location. It is under siege. Yeah. Uh, but, but only just. 
Yeah, it's borderline. It's 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 not a traditional base under siege by any means, to my it's, mind. It's not what we think of as base under siege, is it? No, no, no. no. All right, well, uh, we'll cross that one off that list as well. <laughs> I think I can see where you're going with this episode, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we now get to one that I've perhaps got a different view on, and that's the Ice Warriors. Okay. Uh, because this is one where I probably am a bit more in sync with fandom, if not a little bit more so. I remember having very fond episodes of this as a kid. Again, based on the, the, the Target novel and that wonderful evocative white cover with the, with the imposing Ice Warrior and Victoria screaming. That was just such a memory for me. Yeah. And, and, and I do love the Ice Warriors, even though they're not in a set of particularly great stories. I mean, I, I really like Curse of Paladon and I quite like Seeds of Death, but they're also in Monster of Paladon. Mm-hmm. Um, and this. <laughs> <laughs> But the Ice Warriors, I've always thought, are the quintessential 60s Doctor Who monster. Like, if you say monster, you think Ice Warriors. Big, green Martians stomping around and hissing. Yes. Yeah, they're they're much more of a monster than a a Dalek or even a Cyberman, for example. Yeah, and they're more interesting and talkative than a Yeti uh, or a Quark. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. So, so I've got a lot of affection for the Ice Warriors themselves. I, I do think that this is a very poor story, though. I think it's by far the weakest story. I think it's the only weak story, frankly, in this season. And that's because the plot actually doesn't go anywhere. It is literally five and a half episodes of people standing around going, well, we can't use our weapon to destroy the Ice Warrior ship because if it's got the wrong sort of engines, it'll blow up and destroy us all. And then getting to 10 minutes from the end and going, Oh, you know what? Let's just try and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm not enamoured with this story uh, either. It is it is bottom of this season for me. Yeah, and it does very poorly in the polling in DWM as well. It comes in 141. Wow, which is quite low, uh, particularly for something with such a classic monster. Uh, this is one we probably have to say is a quintessential base under siege. I I, I think so for sure. Yeah, it's the futuristic setting. Uh, Leader Clint, he doesn't go totally bonkers, but he does get quite flustered and nutty at a few stages. It's got the the, the monster that's attacking the base from the outside. This, this, I will pay, is a base under siege story. Yes, agreed. And a weak one. Yeah, absolutely. Now, moving on, Dave... This is the story I was alluding to earlier where the, the fan wisdom is that, oh, people never liked this, and then we found it, and everyone thought it was great. I always thought this was great. I, whenever I hear that point of view, I think, are, are you nuts? Like, did you never read the novel? Did you never look at the, the still photos and see that Patrick Troughton was playing the two roles? And how interesting was that? And, you know, I, I thought this was always really perceived quite well. But people say, oh, no, no, we all thought it was crap, you know, until we saw it. Um, that was not my experience at all. It's interesting you say that. I would say that it wasn't so much thought of as crap as just forgotten. Hmm, okay. Uh, particularly as, look, the, the episode that existed, part three, we now know, is the weakest one of the story. And it, it is that classic middle of a six-parter story where you've done a couple of episodes of setup and you've got everything going, and then you just sort of need to put everything in its place before hitting the conclusion in the second half of the story. And we, we get that. I, I was actually quite down on it, I've got to confess, Rob, for a long time. And there's a couple of reasons for it. One is that I read the novel when I was very young, and it is not a young kid's novel. No. 
it, it is very, very violent. It is very, very graphic. I, I can still remember being quite traumatized, if you like, by there's a scene where um, Salamander like sticks a a, 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 a stalagmite through someone's head or something. Mm, I um, vaguely remember that. Yep. Yeah, we're, we're, it's the it's the guy down in the hidden survivors base who convinces Salamander to take him outside and see the world and. Salamander you know, sticks this stalactite through his eye or something. Yeah, hilarity um, I, ensues. Yeah, yeah, and I remember, I remember, you know, being a kid and really not appreciating that, or, or frankly, getting what the story was about. Mm. Um, I also do think that Enemy of the World is structurally flawed in some ways, in that the entire secondary plot with those, you know, nuclear survivors, whatever you want to call them, I think comes in a bit too late. Okay. Um, and I also think that there's a little bit too much of the Doctor standing around saying, no, I'm not going to impersonate Salamander. I, I don't know who the good guys and the bad guys in this situation are. For all I know, you're the bad guys and he's the good I, I don't know. Why, why would I get involved? In, in between which you see Salamander being unequivocally the baddie. <laughs> yes. So, so it kind of makes the Doctor look a little bit dull. Now, mm. when you're listening to that in an audio, that is very, very important. In an audio, structure and timing and everything are really, really important because you have no visuals to set them free. But when it was discovered, we suddenly had visuals. And, and, and you can be a lot more forgiving about that, particularly, I mean, I think, I think a lot of its reputation now does sit on part one. Oh, really? Because of what, the location filming? Or? Yeah, yeah, the, the location filming and you know, Trouton's performance on the beach and the helicopters. I, I think that that was such a contrast to what we expected that people go, Wow! Mm-hmm. This is amazing, and and, and it, I'm not, not saying that the other five are bad, but I'm saying that he's so good that it it does lift reasonably good episodes to follow. Yeah. Oh, look, that. Yeah, I can go with that. I can go with that. But I, I still like this very much as a story, and and was never really against it. Yeah, and, and I guess what I'm saying is I have learned to really like it. I don't think it's the classic some people do, but it is certainly I appreciate it a lot a lot more having seen it. it there is no doubt that its reputation has gone up. Mm. Uh, in in the poll, it came in at fifty six, which isn't bad. Okay, it's good um, for a story that you know does lack a traditional Doctor Who sort of motif, and certainly lacks a traditional Doctor Who monster. I was going to say, you know, I I was mentioning, you know, with um, Abominable Snowman, you know, themes that might have jived uh, in the sixties. Uh, I think uh, the the sort of James Bond sort of vibe that is that is in this story to me you know i I think salamander is a great james bond villain (laughs) Um, yeah he is really good he's really really good and i think that might have appealed to to 60s viewers as well i think that doctor who's doing something different here uh yeah absolutely and can we say this is unequivocally definitely 100 percent not a base under siege i think we can i think we can (laughs) Now, Dave, at the I, I know this to be true, so I'll just mention here, at the end of episode six of this story, the BBC actually uh, broadcast a very special trailer with Patrick Troughton warning viewers that there was a new, more frightening version of the Yeti coming. Is that right? That is right. I didn't know that. Yes, which leads into, of course, da, 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 the Web of Fear. The Web of Fear. This is one that I think the fan wisdom is... Uh, it used to be a top 10 classic and now it's not. Yes. All that said, though, the Doctor Who magazine survey has it at 16. Good God, that's high. That's very high. It is very high. 
and it is the highest of the season. Uh, that that boggles my mind a bit because surely that's based on people having seen it now. Yeah, well, definitely the DVDs were out by the time that survey was done. But if Enemy, you... en- en- sorry, Enemy of the World had lifted up to the fifties, but Web of Fear. I, it, it was in the top 20 before it was found, and it's still in the top 20 after it's found. That that boggles my mind, because if, if I sit this alongside Enemy of the World, I think Enemy of the World is much more enjoyable to watch. Um, you know, but that's just a personal point of view. But, you know, to be up near 16, or to be 16, that that's... Phew, I'm shocked at that, actually. Yeah, and this is what I'm saying. This, this idea that uh, it is a less-loved season than it used to be, is is starting to fall fall down a bit as a theory because its best story is in the top twenty, and I'm I'm not shocked. I I remember there were a lot of people when the Web of Fear came out who did a couple of things. One, they were trying to repeat that Tomb of the Cybermen narrative. That 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 it was a it, it was a classic. We all thought it was a classic. We were told it was a classic. Then we saw it, and it wasn't as good as we thought it was. And the memory cheats, and it's all gone down. That's clearly not the case. The other thing was people were so keen and so excited by how good they'd found Enemy of the World to be that they almost had to sort of knock Weber Fear down to make Enemy of the World come up. Like, well, Web of Fear was kind of what we expected, maybe even not as good, but how good was Enemy of the World? Mm. Yeah, I think there was definitely a bit of that going on. Again, for me, I I wasn't building up uh, Enemy of the World because I already liked it, but I think, broadly, I think you're hitting on what was going on, yes. Yeah, and and I don't think there was anything to be disappointed by. It was still... the, The sets that we could see in Part 1, which did exist were just as good in the other five parts. Uh, you got Nicholas Courtney added to the cast, which is only going to improve things. And, and what a portrayal. Like that, that, that scene in, I think, the end of part four, where uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart and his Lieutenant Colonel, check his rank slide, he's not a colonel. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that's come from. Anyway, where, where Lieutenant Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart breaks down. He just says, it's, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. How can we fight them? Mm. And and that would have been a powerful enough scene watching it in 1968. You know, a, a member of the military elite b- breaking down and defeated. But we've now had all the rest of the history of Lethbridge Stewart to come and to know and to love. And to see him break down on screen, wow, that was powerful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so he's been added to the cast. The, the Yeti, I think, are great. The, the sets are still great. Uh, the, the, the scene at Covent Garden, the Battle of Covent Garden... That is brilliant. Mm. For something shot in 1968, that is superb. Yeah, and, and even just like the, the tube in general, I mean, there's there's that great story that uh, the people who run the tube were very pissed off that the BBC had asked, could we film? They said no, and then they saw this on TV and thought the BBC had gone and done some, I don't know, some guerrilla shooting or something down <laughs> in, the, in the tube at night or something. They, they were convinced, absolutely convinced it was real and it, and it was just a set. Yeah, yeah, it really was quite extraordinary. So I actually don't think there was anything to be disappointed by in this. If if you'd read the novel, you'd seen part one, you'd probably listened to the BBC audio uh, CDs. This is this this delivered what you expected, and it hasn't moved in the charts. And I think that it is as good as as its reputation suggests. 
Yeah, look, I think it's a great story. I don't. It's not one of my like top stories from this season. You know, I'm I'm liking the Tomb of the Cybermen. I'm liking uh, Enemy of the World and so on. But it, it's right up there. It's it's just behind them for me. You know, no, nothing disappointing here at all. Uh, yeah, it's probably my third as well, um, okay. behind Tomb and a story yet to come. Uh, but, but yeah, I think I think it is is a strong story in a strong season. Um, Base under siege. I, I will I will give it confined area where they can't escape. Yep. I'll give it monster. Yep. Doesn't have futuristic setting. Not at all. And it doesn't have a crazy base commander collapsing under the mental stress. No. On balance I'd say not. I'll say I'll say not. It's got elements. Mm. But but it's not your classic base under siege. No. We'll bring it now to one of my top two. I, th- I think Tomb is my top of this one, Rob. Mm-hmm. But 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 Fury from the Deep is a very close second. Okay, what do you like about it? I just love the tension, and right. I love the characters, and I love the, the 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 difference of it. It it is a story that I came to uh, first by novel, which is great. Then by the audio, it was one of the first stories to be released on cassette. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you remember, Rob. Back in the early 90s, they released The Macro Terror and Evil of the Daleks on cassette. And in the very next bunch, they had Power of the Daleks and Fury from the Deep. Right. So it was one of the first stories out as an audio with, with that JNT scripted narration. It was, was not great, but that's okay. <laughs> but this works so well as an audio. You feel isolated. You've got that heartbeat of the, of the weed. You've got the screaming. You've got that wonderfully mysterious, almost Kubrick-esque seen on the beach as um, uh, Mrs. Uh, Harris walks into the sea. Um, you know, it's, it's so creepy and it's so interesting and it, it keeps you gripped for six parts. Uh, I, I really, really love this one, Rob. Well, it's amazing what the BBC foam machine can do for a story, Dave. I'll, I'll say that much. <laughs> and, and look, that is my worry, that if this was found, it would just be... Lots of people splashing around in the BBC phone machine. <laughs> I do worry about that. Yeah, I've I've never liked it to quite the extent you you clearly do. I I think it's it's interesting. I think that big novel that came out sort of piqued my interest in it and so on. But it never it never quite grabbed me as this big monster story. You know, when we think of a tomb of the Cybermen, or we think of you know, some of the others in this series, like the the Yeti and so on, or Iris Warriors. I think it's a more adult adventure, and I should probably reread that novel as an adult. I haven't read it again as an adult, because I think mm. it might appeal to me more now as an adult. But as a kid, you know, seaweed, I, 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 <laughs> I wasn't that into it, to be honest. And this is all very interesting, because to get back to the premise of our episode, I think this is undoubtedly a story where fandoms perceived collective view has has gone down when i was young 30 years ago this was seen as an absolute top 10 classic mm-hmm. and i think that was on the back of the novel a few people's memories of having seen it as a kid and and also uh to some extent that soundtrack the soundtrack really does work do you think there was also elements like oh the doctor's got gets out the sonic screwdriver for the first time, or, or there was all those iconic pictures of the, the trio on the beach and all that. It's, it's like in my head, I used to see pictures of them on the beach from Fury of the Deep far more than just about any other shot 
from the Troughton era. Yeah, yeah, I think that could have been part of it. And, and I think that then it sort of it did fade a bit from people's memories. Uh, it was given a bit of a boost in the 90s when the censored clips came back. Its reputation went up a bit then, and I think it has faded now. And I think there is that sort of very cynical view from the sort of fans who do voice their opinion a lot of, well, if we found it, it wouldn't be as good. And in the end, it all hinges on Victoria screaming and it would just be the BBC foam machine. And look, maybe there is an element of that. Well, I mean, you were saying that earlier. Yeah, and, and I, I fully concede that, that last point, certainly. I, I, look, I don't think the visuals would be that bad, mm-hmm. uh, but it is always a risk with the 1960s. Because uh, because we've got that um that off of screen um few seconds from episode six as well, which does look when I say off screen like the the one where somebody pointed the video camera at the TV. Yeah, yeah, film camera. The, yeah, yeah, the, the, those clips. There's about six seconds of part six of Fury there in the climax, and that does look pretty good. I, I think there's no doubt that Fury has had its reputation suffer in the last little while, and I think the fact that it also is sixth out of seven, and there is that that. I think more and more proving to be mistaken, me and Rob, that it's oh, it's just the next base under siege. We're tired of that by this stage. I think it's 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 due for reevaluation. Uh, Sixty nine in the DWM poll. That's pretty pretty good for it, I think. Uh, yeah, but it used to be up in the twenties. Right. Yeah. Well, see, sixty nine is about where I'd put it. So, okay. So I think that's pretty good in terms of where I would put it. Yeah. Base under siege. Now it's it's in the open. English countryside. They actually go away from the base, off to the beach, and off to the uh, oil rig, gas or gas rig, or whatever it is. So they're not they're not confined. They're not really under siege. Mm. The the base commander does go a bit troppo. Yeah, I guess there are elements of this story that you can tick the base under siege box, but elements where you can't. It's it's a it's a coin toss for me on this one. I think. Yeah, it, it is another one, a bit like Web of Fear, that has some elements but not others. Mm. That said, although Mister Robinson does go a bit troppo after he's stung by the weed, we get um, Megan Megan Jones comes in. Yes, and she's the like national executive of this this gas company, and she kicks some ass. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so you're going to link this back to our Tomb of the Cybermen, I think. Yeah, we, we said there that we had you know a strong female character in Kaftan. We've got another one here in uh, in Megan Jones, and indeed we had um, Anne Travers in The Web of Fear. Yeah, look, I, I completely agree. I, I love that Doctor Who did this, and you know people seem so surprised by it now, um, but but they were already doing this 50 years ago. You know, they've, they've continued through. There's been great female characters in Doctor Who all along. I'm very proud of that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And one thing I noticed when I had to rewatch The Tenth Planet uh, for another podcast yet to be released, but, but when I rewatched that, I, I was really impressed by the multi-ethnic crew they had of the Snowcap base. Yep. You know, they had an Australian astronaut, a black American astronaut, all that, all that sort of thing, but there literally were no women. But we're only two years later, and we've got some very strong female characters, and more again as we move into the last story of the season, the Wheeling Space. Yes, absolutely. Shall we go there now? Let's go there now. What's your perception of this one, Rob? Well, Dave, it's a Cyberman story. So it is. It is. <laughs> so it instantly gets uh, a couple of points out of five already from me, just for being a Cyberman story. It's not the best Cyberman story, but then again, most Cyberman stories aren't. It does, however, introduce Zoe. It is in space. We get a new look uh, Cyberman suit. I 
I've always kind of liked this one. And yeah, I would too. say I would say if we're talking fan perceptions, though, fan perceptions haven't been too high on it, I don't think. Now you've probably got the figures in front of you, but my perception is it's not that well regarded. hundred and seventy seven. Christ, that's even worse than I thought. But yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. I, I didn't think it would be well regarded, but I, I like it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of this as well. It was never perceived as being the classic of the season. I think no. Tomb and Ice Warriors and Web of Fear and Fury, they were always above it, and, and justifiably so. But I don't think it was seen as being the runt of the litter either because it, it was that Cyberman story and it was exciting. We, we grew up with all those pictures in the technical manual and the um, Radio Times 20th anniversary special, the Servo Robot, for example. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, that that was a bit interesting. And it, 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 it again, had a really good Terence Dix novel that came out. It was one of the later Terence Dix novels where he had a bit bit longer to do it and a bit more page count to do it with. And, and a very rare novel too these days, Dave. Very rare, very rare, yes. Uh, lovely cover as well. Oh, gorgeous cover. Um, and, and I can remember the first time I saw... Parts three and six, uh, again, at a club meeting, they had a Cyber Day and showed a whole lot of loose uh, 1960s cyber episodes. So this, the moon base, 10th planet, etc. And just loving it. Because, hey, it's Patrick Trouton and Cyberman, guys. What, yeah. what more do you want? What more do you want? Uh, well, throw, uh, throw in Zoe. That's what more I want. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I think it does suffer from the fact that, again, part three is the weakest of the episodes. I listened to this about a year ago on, on audio when I was driving around New York, uh, up, upstate New York, I should say. Uh, I'm not sure how many people have driven around upstate New York listening to the, web, to the wheel in space, but anyway. <laughs> uh, certainly not the Hamptons. Uh, anyway. No. <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. I'm diverting. Um, <laughs> I, d- I did find listening to it, it flowed a lot better. Episodes one and two are really good because you've got all that stuff on the silver carrier. You've got the servo robot. You've got introducing the crew, the first appearance of the Cybermats. That's all really good. Episode three is, again, that one where having had the exciting introduction, you then slow things down a bit. You learn a bit more about what this thing is. You have all those exposition scenes. Yeah. You have the Doctor sort of learning, learning what's going on. You, you have the Cybermen slowly starting to develop their plan. And it does slow down for part three. I, I, I get that. And unfortunately, that, three is one of the ones we actually have the, the full episode of. Exactly. But then in parts four, four and five, you get the Cybermen attacking the wheel and, and infiltrating the wheel. And all of the action goes through with that. You get Gemma Corwin sacrificing her life to to make sure the Doctor knows to turn on the sexual air supply. You um. And we're missing those episodes. <laughs> yeah, and we're missing those episodes. I think part six is actually quite good. We do have that one. Yes. So, it is another one of those ones that I think does suffer from the episodes available. Yes. Uh, and actually, if it was found, you know, it to, to me, Rob, it's a bit like The Chase. Mm-hmm. Okay, is The Chase the weakest of the 60s Dalek stories? Well, yes. But that's okay, because they're all bloody brilliant. Yeah. Is The Will in Space the weakest of the 60s Cybermen stories? Yeah, it probably is. But it's the weakest of a really good bunch. You, you disagree, Rob? Oh, I'd, I'd maybe say the moon base is weaker than this. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And and that's because I quite like this story. I'm mean, oh, maybe they're on par with each other. Well, but... well, there you go. I mean, if even if it's sort of you know the equal weakest, well, that's that's of a really good bunch. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think this this is criminally underrated. Yeah, I I agree with you uh, absolutely. It's it's still not like 
top of the pops for this season for me at all. But it's it's not a known goal. It's 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 right up there. You know, well, it might well, be fourth in the season for me. Yeah, look, it's fourth or fifth for me. And if this is fourth or fifth in a season, that's a pretty strong season in my view. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and again, you know, I'll, I'll mention it again. We 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 meet Zoe in this story, Dave, and she is a a great companion and a great character in general. It is. So we'll talk about that that companion thing in a moment because I think that needs its own little little discussion okay uh, but we need to wrap up the wheel in space we both said it's really good uh certainly better than being 177th in the poll yes uh i will have to say though i think that this is the one quintessential base under siege in the season and i think that's completely fair and i think there's nothing wrong with that yeah the, the wheel is isolated the cybermen are a classic trout and monster it is futuristic. It does have that wonderful multi-ethnic crew, including some really good women characters there. Mm-hmm. Uh, not least of all, of course, being Zoe. Um, and it does have a base commander who goes completely bonkers. Yeah. Yeah, uh, unequivocally a, uh, a base under siege. But, but so let's just finish on that thought before we go on to the companions. Of the seven stories, there's only one that we've said is an unequivocal tick-every-box base under siege story. Yes. Well, that's that myth shattered. <laughs> All right, Adam. Uh... <laughs> but but I, I, I'm absolutely serious. They are very different plots. They're very different locations. Yeah. You know, you've got a wide variety of monsters. You've got Cybermen bookending it. You've got the Yeti in there. You've got weed creatures. You've got Salamander. You've got Ice Warriors. It, it's so many classic things. And I, I, I do not for a moment accept that this is the same story again and again and again with a different monster. No. No, it's not at all. But, you know, tempering this season being absolutely great, can we segue into The Companions? We can. <laughs> so I started this segment, Rob, saying that my very vivid memory was that 30 years ago, The Doctor and Jamie and Victoria was considered the classic TARDIS team. Yes. Is that the case now? No. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Where do you... Go on. And I'll tell you, tell you my perception. Growing yeah. up, I was obviously reading the Target novels of most of these stories before I had any hope of seeing them uh, at all, either through dodgy videos or through proper releases or, or even through audio. And in print and looking at still photos that seemed quite iconic to me, I thought they were a really great team. You know, and to this day, if I go and put myself back in the shoes of that however old I was, 11 years old, 12 years old. Yeah, I thought, oh, this is just perfect. He's got these two companions from the past and one's a boy and one's a girl and, you know, have they have these personalities and, oh, it's just wonderful. But the more I would see of it, the more I would absolutely think that Victoria was a weak link and just not interesting to watch, screamed far too much and I just... I just couldn't get behind as a companion in the way that I can get behind, I don't know, other companions, even other companions who scream like a Joe Grant or someone like that. I, I, I just can't get behind Victoria. I think Jamie is a fantastic companion, but this team, no, no. The more I saw of it as it was meant to be seen, i.e. on television, I fell away from it big time. Was your problem Victoria the character or Debbie Watling the actress? Sad as it is to say, I've got to say it's probably Watling as the actress because she's bringing the character to life. Okay, that's really interesting. I agree with you certainly that this is now the fan 
perception that she's actually a very poor companion. And some people would go as far as to say she's very badly acted. Mm. Uh, I definitely push back against the idea that she is badly acted. Yes, there are some stories where she is not as good, and, and you certainly see that that pressure of churning out Doctor Who week after week does get to Watling at times. I think in Tomb of the Sidemen, she's really good. The, in Abominable Snowman, she's really good. Fury from the Deep, she's really good. I think she does struggle in the middle. And I think that that is a reflection of when the character is written poorly. In Tomb, she's given a bit of agency, a bit of independence, and even gets to have a few snarky lines at times. Same in Fury from the Deep, same in Enemy of the World. The Ice Warriors, though, she literally is a peril monkey who is just there to scream. Mm. And, and so there is an underwriting of the character. I, I do accept that. I don't think it's as bad as some people say. Uh, I, I accept that it's not as good as legend has it. And I think perhaps, particularly now that almost all of season six is available to view, other than, what, five episodes of The Space Pirates and two episodes of Invasion, mm. we get to see all of Zoe Harriet. And, and I do agree that put up against Zoe... Victoria does look the weaker for it. I think so. I think Zoe has a more modern feel to her. You know, she gets to be the clever clogs and say really smart-ass stuff to people because yeah. she's she's just clever. And that kind of fits with the way a Buffy-type character is written or some of the characters on Riverdale, for example. She just seems more modern and more with it, you know? No... Yeah, I, I could see her fitting in on Babylon 5, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. She's modern. She's smart. You know, and it's not just that she's from the future. She's just... She just is so different to the Victoria character. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder, to, to an extent as well, how much it is that sort of that pendulum opinion where if you take Victoria from, okay, she's not the legendary best companion ever status... And you have to take it back. There is a bit of sort of overswing to, well, she's terrible. And, and, and maybe in a few years' time, it will settle down and go, she has some good stories. She has some less good stories. Mm. Yeah, look, hopefully. Because I think as, as a person, Debbie Watling seemed just amazing and, and a bit bonkers and, and a lot of fun, you know, when you watch her in interviews and stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I met her a few years ago and, yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, no. And alongside all of them, of course, Fraser Hines as Jamie. Indeed, who has recently been out uh, for Supernova here in Australia. I, I didn't go and see him. But... Uh, no, I've seen him at a couple of cons. I didn't see him this time he was out. Yeah, but yeah, look, I I think he's, it's cliche, but I think he's the perfect companion for, for Pat Troughton. Um, and it was great that he stayed so long in the role because we got yeah. to see a lot of him. Yeah, look, I think one thing that has been consistent in fandom opinion is that Fraser Hines' Jamie is superb, and there's a reason why that has been so consistent for so many decades. Yeah, I don't think we need to say more on that. No, and, and indeed you could say the same about Troughton himself. I, I do not think there is a poor performance by Troughton in any of these stories. Yeah, although, you know, in the last 12 months, I, I've started to get the feeling that some people are getting the wobbles with him or maybe getting a bit put off that he's always regarded as the doctor and, oh, he's he's the governor, you know, none better. All the other doctors think he's the governor, you know, full stop. I think there might be some pushback coming against that. I'm not sure how far it'll get, though. Yeah, I felt a bit of that coming over the last few years. I think a lot of it has been more of a pushback against his era, uh, particularly this season, as we've been discussing tonight. Hmm. 
Uh, but I think there is, yeah, as, as you say, a little bit of a pushback there. And sometimes it is that unfortunate thing of, well, you need to diminish one to build up another. Yeah, and also just that feeling of if something's getting really, really praised or really, really panned, there's a kind of contrary person who will stick up for the underdog. You know, the more Colin Baker got panned, the, the quicker we got to people say, oh, no, Colin Baker's amazing and his costume is fantastic and his portrayal is great and he was so hard done by and, you know, and defending every single thing. Yeah, there, There's not that sort of sensible centre where we like to be, where it's like, well, he's been brilliant in this story but he is absolutely appalling in this story you know being able to say both both ways about him yeah i mean the famous 90s pushback with some big name fans against john pertwee for example you know there was no quicker way to make a bit of a name for yourself with a bit of notoriety in fandom than write an article about how john pertwee was actually not god yeah indeed um yeah so yeah you, you do get those sort of tension so overall rob what's your what's your feeling about this season and where do you think its reputation should be i quite like it i think there's more than enough here to put it in you know a very likable sort of category of doctor who in general in terms of Troughton's seasons i almost want to say it could be his best i think unquestionably it is his best uh, I don't think it's got all of his best stories. There are some great stories elsewhere. I mean, let's face it, Evil of the Daleks and Power of the Daleks aren't in this season. The War Games isn't in this season. Invasion isn't in this season. There are some, but 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 you know, hit for hit, I think this is the strongest because yeah. yeah and I say that despite Victoria being there and what I've just said about her uh, in terms of just the stories and just the way it, it fits together, I think it's great. I think it's great too, and. Maybe it's time for fans to have a bit of a re-evaluation the other way. Yeah, well, at least come to the sensible centre. <laughs> That's right. But, 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 but look, to, to wrap it all up, I, I do think it's fascinating how received wisdom has gone up and down on this, this thing. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch fandom at work sometimes. It is indeed. I'm glad we skipped through these. I mean, obviously, there's a number of stories here, so we skipped through them pretty quick. But just to, to tease out a few themes, like is it base under siege? You know, what do we feel about it? And so on. I think we've we've got a pretty good handle on this season now. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy. It, it is a favourite of mine. I thought it needed some defending, and um, I've enjoyed defending it. Excellent. Well, what did you out there think about it? If you've got any strong thoughts one way or the other, or maybe you're in the sensible centre, who knows? Uh, drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook or email hello at the dwshow.net and let us know. Please do. I'm really, really interested to hear what people think about this season now. Alrighty. Speaking of mail, Dave, we have a message uh, through our Facebook page from Shane Gordon. And Shane says, Hey there, chaps. Thanks for your solo review. There were a couple of episodes of The Goodies they didn't like that I did and vice versa. Sorry if no one gets the reference, but with this review, Dave and Richard nailed it. I don't go to see any Star Wars films expecting Shakespeare. I want escapist fun with awesome special effects on a big screen and Solo tick the boxes. Like Rogue One, I'm not sure the prequel had to be made, and if they are continuing on this line, I'd like to see something totally unrelated to the storyline we already know. Now, I've tried to be spoiler-free just in case someone reading this, or I guess hearing this, Shane, hasn't listened to this review or seen the movie. But I'd like to speculate that L3, who to me looked like a big R2-D2 with legs, may have been subtly referenced in A New Hope onwards by how R2 works with the Falcon. 
It's hard to fully explain what I mean and stay spoiler-free, but I hope you get the gist. Well, Shane, I get the gist, and I've not even seen the film. Um, anyway, <laughs> thanks for a great review. And as a Virgin New Adventures fan, I'm looking forward to the next Doctor Who installment, I Love Iceberg, one of my favourite Cybermen stories of all time, from Shane Gordon. Well, thank you for that, Shane. It's really nice to hear you enjoyed our interview. I agree with a lot of what you said. And yeah, your theory about L3, yeah, it stands up. It's perfectly credible. Uh, and yeah, I'm glad you like Iceberg. That was in my top 10 as well. Yeah, so hopefully by now you've heard that uh, Virgin New Adventures episode, Shane. Maybe you can let us know about that one too. Mm, please do. Uh, before we go, Rob, I just wanted to mention something that I saw on the weekend. Yes. That is the 50th anniversary re-release of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Is that right? It, I, yeah, it is. Is that so, 50 years? That is 50 years. Oh, my God. Yeah, it would be. Wow. Uh, so they, they, they've got the 70 millimeter print, Ooh. and Christopher Nolan um, was in charge of the restoring of it to, to original status. So they haven't given us a, a sort of a restoration to make it look different. They've just restored it to what it should look like. And I went and saw it with some friends at the Astor Theatre here in Melbourne. Yeah. And they were at pains to do the presentation as it would have been in the 1960s. So with the same prelude music before they start screening the movie, they had the same intermission length and, and placement, uh, all that sort of things in this wonderful old cinema. Were Maltesers at 60s prices? Uh, not quite, no. Oh, that, that, okay. That's one thing that wasn't 60s. <laughs> oh, they balls that up then. Uh, but look, I hadn't seen 2001 at the cinema before. I'd only seen it as a Sunday afternoon movie on TV. Yeah. Where, where you sort of appreciate it, but I, I sort of struggled with it. I got a whole new level of appreciation for it, watching it in the cinema. Uh, and the, and the, same, the same for the guys that we were with. We were just blown away by the detail, the colour, the, the, the visuals, the model work, the, 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 the thought that Arthur C. Clarke has put into some of these concepts and that Kubrick has done in delivering the meat. It just works so well on the cinema screen. Uh, I know that in a number of places, certainly in America and Britain and Australia, um, they're continuing to do these screenings. And if they're still going on near you, I really encourage you to take some time and see this. It was it was a whole different movie experience seeing it on the big screen. Yeah, I think that is one of the films where that is absolutely the case. People say that about some films. And, and and you think, oh, no, that's just bollocks. You know, it's probably just yeah, as yeah. good on my home theatre. Yep. But th- that is genuinely one of them, I think. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. All right, then, Dave, let's close out by talking about what we'll talk about next time we come back. Uh, we'll have a fun topic for the end of July, uh, that episode. We're going to talk about classic doctors in New Who stories. Which Doctors would we like to see in modern stories? Or are there some modern stories where we just can't imagine anyone else in the role? You know, it's, it's got to be Tenet or no one. Or, or Smithy. Yeah. Probably not Smithy for you, Dave. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll still see. I think there are some that maybe would only work with Smithy. So I will certainly be coming to the table with a new Who story in which I'm going to place each of the first eight Doctors, one each. Yes. And, and just say that. And, and yes, I think that's a, a good thought, Rob. I'll also have a couple where I go, no. No other Doctor would work in this story. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm already having some good thoughts, and I think that's going to be one of our uh, fun episodes, like when we uh, were script editors for a day uh, earlier in the year. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so too. And, and as always, I hope we get some feedback from our listeners and some ideas from them and see if any of them have the same ideas as us. Yeah, so if you've made it through to the end of this episode and you've just heard that, why don't you tweet us and let us know what you think? Please do. All right then, Dave. Until the end of July, I've been Rob. I've been Dave. And we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.
You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.